Thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. Um, we're in Mark 13 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 27, and uh, I want to start by reading the, the main part of it to you, the, the red print. Um, this is not a competition, but I, I felt a little skittish about reading Jesus' sermon is effectively what we have here uh, from verses 5. We'll go just through 27 and then look at the rest next week. Um, not that I'm trying to compete with Jesus here, but if I start with his sermon and then I have to preach a sermon, I feel like, well, that's going to be really weak. But um, the alternative is to assume you have familiarity with Mark 13, um, which, which maybe you haven't. Uh, uh, maybe you haven't looked at it recently. So let's look at Mark 13, starting with verse 5. Um, this is what they sometimes call the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is um, on Olivet, you know, the Mount of Olives. And he's, he says this to his disciples. We'll go back and do this setup later, but here's the sermon itself. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pangs. But be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brothers will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, I don't know if you like the book of Revelation. A lot of people don't like the book of Revelation. And the reason a lot of people don't like the book of Revelation is because a lot of other people do like the book of Revelation, and they like it a little bit too much. 
And it puts everybody else off of it because we don't want to be one of those end times prophecy kinds of Christians. Um, they're just kind of odd people. I grew up in a great little church in Southern California full of end times prophecy people. Uh, they were godly, serious believers. They loved each other. They fed the hungry. They told non-Christians about Jesus. But when you brought up prophetic topics, they would lean in just a little bit too close for your personal space. Uh, and their eyes would kind of bug out just a little bit. And they, they always had a tape series they wanted you to listen to that you could take away home with you. And without much provocation, they would draw a chart for you. Or most of them actually already had a chart at the back of their study Bibles. And they all had very complex study Bibles. Uh, now, if I were in charge, I'm not applying for this job, but if I were in charge of the Department of Hell, whose job was to keep Christians from hearing the whole counsel of the Word of God, this is exactly how I would do it. I would recruit a few people, a very small number is all it takes, to get radically excited about prophetic topics in Scripture, thereby scaring off the vast majority of Christians from ever listening to, looking at, or attending to anything remotely prophetic in Scripture. One of the commentaries I looked at this week said, um, it is absurd to say just because some persons have uttered wild things and confounded the frightened people with a storm of words without knowledge that no one is permitted to study prophecy. That's absurd. And yet, it's how I, the way I read things these days, it's how the vast majority of good biblical evangelical Christians behave. We, uh, we're a little skittish about that prophetic stuff. So we keep the book of Revelation way back here at the end of the Bible. It's like, that's optional. You don't, you don't have to go there to get anywhere else. You have to specifically go to that section, and you don't. And uh, it's, I mean, it's back here. It's almost not in the Bible. It's by the book of Maps. Like you're almost, <laughs> like you're, you're almost out of pages there. Um, and when for any, for some strange reason you do go there, everything you've heard is true. It's all really there. There are bowls of wrath and there are scorpions and there are comets hitting the ocean and stars are falling out of the sky. Four horsemen of the apocalypse, mark of the beast, the whole catastrophe is there. Um, and we don't want to be end times prophecy Christians because those people are a little bit weird. We just want to love Jesus. We just want to obey him and we just want to listen to his word. And then we come to Mark 13, where our friend Jesus, instead of behaving himself, starts talking exactly like the book of Revelation. I mean, you can't trust anybody these days. Um, but here's why it's a good thing that the book of Revelation and Mark chapter 13, all that red ink, that entire sermon by Jesus, here's why it's a good thing that they sound alike. Because eschatology, the teaching about the end times, the prophetic content of scripture, all of that stuff about the end is always about Jesus Christ. Right? It, it's actually always focused on a revelation of who Jesus is. The actual name of that last book of the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not mainly about filling in the blank spots on your prophecy chart. Uh, and it's not mainly about getting the right secret code for reading today's newspapers with so you can play pin the tail on the Antichrist later. It's not mostly about that. It's mostly about coming to know who Jesus is. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the beginning and the end. You get that? I could put the, the, the ellipsis in there and say, I am dot, 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 the end. So teaching about the end is teaching about who Jesus is. He is the end times. He, he, when, to learn about what is coming up finally in the ultimate future, in the ultimate resolution of God's plan, is to learn about the nature of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he does. And that's why what we've got here in Mark 13 is Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. This is a way of coming to understand who Jesus is as a prophet. That's where we'll spend most of our time this morning because 
I mean, you heard the passage. It's mainly about Jesus functioning in the role of prophet. Um, and then we'll get to the nature of that prophecy, which opens up for us and reveals to us Jesus' work as priest and his identity as coming king. So look at the setup of this passage. I skipped this a little bit so we could get right into the words that Jesus said. But here's how it starts. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, there's already a lot going on right here in the first verse. First of all, whichever disciple it is who speaks, um, and it doesn't tell us which one it is, just as one of them said, um, all of Jesus' disciples are probably pretty easily impressed. I mean, you got to picture their social location. They're from up north. That's not the cool place to be from in Israel. Uh, they don't get to the Jerusalem temple very often. And so they are pretty much gawking like rednecks at, golly, look at the amazing buildings. Shucks, we don't have anything like this up north in Galilee. Um, it, what is the, one of the coaches uh, gave the advice not to spike the football in the end zone. He said, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is probably playing it cool, partly because he really is cool, partly because uh, Joseph and Mary brought him here at least every year, we know from Luke. You know, So he's, he's been here before, um, but not the disciples, man. They are just, they are taking selfies and they are trying to get Jesus in them and it's the whole thing. But even though they're, they're a little bit, you know, they're yokels, God loves yokels, but they're, they're a little bit yokelish from up north. Um, this really is a very impressive building. At this time, the temple that they walk into in Jerusalem, it, it actually, if, if you saw it, you'd say, wow, look at that. Um, this is not the little building that Zerubbabel put up that made the old men cry and say, well, it's not much of a temple. This is, this is the result of Herod's 80-year-long building project where he just expanded that thing to one of the books I looked at said it was a fourth of the interior of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's a good-sized city, and a fourth of the territory is taken up with this temple and its outlying grounds and complexes and things like that. So, and the building itself, these stones, these rocks that they're admiring are apparently 40 feet long and 20 feet wide. So, and they're covered with gold. The, the front-facing surfaces are, are gold-covered. So um, not only are they very, very large, and you look at them and think, how did someone put that there? But they also shine brightly. Um, the Roman, uh, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus said, on sunny days, the golden surface of the temple, quote, radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. So if, if the sun was bouncing off of that temple at you, you really would um, uh, be shocked by the color. And travelers coming, approaching the city from a distance said, um, it would throw the light and, and shine with a kind of a golden whiteness that made you think um, there was a snow-covered mountain in the middle of the city. So that, that's impressive. And Jesus says, yeah, I admit that it's impressive. See these great buildings? Not impressive compared to what I'm seeing. Um, it, what Jesus is seeing that the disciples are not seeing is what leads him to say, see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is seeing the magnificent temple, but he's seeing beyond it. He's seeing beyond the spectacle that's right here in front of him. He's seeing the whole sacred history of God with humanity that has led up to that temple being there. He's seeing all of that, and he's seeing where it's going. He's seeing the context. He sees the great temple in its perspective. 
And here's the third thing that's going on. Last week in Mark 12, uh, we looked at Jesus teaching inside the temple compound. I don't know if you remember that. He was watching a whole parade of rich people putting big money in the offering. He, he set his chair down. I guess he had a chair. Anyway, he sat up. Uh, he sat down opposite the treasury so that he could see what was happening. And gold is just flowing into the treasury. And one little poor widow woman drops two tiny little coins um, worth, I think, less than a penny. That's what the commentary said. The two of them together made up a little less than what we would call a penny. And remember that he drew attention to that. He said, that's the main thing going on here. Not all the gold. Don't pay attention to all the gold. Um, forget all the big, important money-changing hands. That right there was the most significant exchange that happened here in this temple today. She gave out of her poverty. She gave her heart. And those two tiny coins were bigger than the gigantic deposits of gold being placed into the treasury. The disciples all got this lesson from Jesus and nodded and said, yeah, Jesus, that is, that's deep. Man, that is really... That is profound. Thanks for sharing that thought. And then they go outside, and immediately, the first thing they do is say, whoa, look at all the big gold, right? You can imagine Jesus stopping the car and turning around and saying, what did I just say? What, what the whole point there, remember we were inside, and I pointed at the lady, and it wasn't all the big gold. It was the two little things, and it was, she was the one truly worshiping, and that showed us the real sense of worship and communion with God, and, and you specifically had to avert your eyes from the big gold. That was what I was talking about. I thought, I thought you guys were with me on this. I thought you were like right there, you know, taking notes and nodding. Um, I don't want to make it sound like Jesus is desperate, like he's out of control or things are getting uh, down to the wire and he's got sort of deadline fever or something, but he has invested a lot of time and energy in teaching these guys. Um, he is officially running out of instructional time to work with the disciples. Um, it's, it's, it's late. It's Wednesday of Holy Week, right? By Friday, he'll be dead. So this is as if I told you some information here this morning and said, this is something you really should take care of by Tuesday because you will perish on Tuesday. And so the clock is running, like this is it. Here's Sunday news that you should take care of in the next couple days. Um, he's got the tiniest bit of time left with his disciples. In fact, his public teaching ministry is already over. There's no more public teaching from Jesus going on. That, that phase of the ministry is already over with and he's going right into the middle of Holy Week. So you have to excuse Jesus if he sounds like a little bit of a killjoy here, right? He's got big things on his mind. He's seeing big things, and it's his last chance to communicate them in all this red print here. Um, this would be sort of like, though, taking Jesus to your favorite church and saying, Jesus, check out this awesome church. And he says, yeah, it's all going to burn. Wow, that was, that was cheery. Um, hey, Jesus, go to the Getty Center with me. Look at the Getty Center. If you see it, it's like a whole city on a hill over the city. It's really amazing, right? And he says, it is impressive, but when the big one hits, it's all coming down. And the big one's hitting pretty soon, by the way. Right? Wow, that's, that's really nice, yeah? Um, hey, Jesus, how about the Disney concert hall? Have you seen this thing? It's really amazing. Jesus replies, I am the symphony and the architecture. Whoa, that's, that's profound. This might take Jesus off of your list of fun people to take a road trip with. Um, but here's the key. The reason Jesus talks like that, and the reason he probably actually isn't fun to take a road trip with if you're into tourist destinations, it's because he's a prophet. He's functioning here in the mode of prophet. He is speaking like prophets have always spoken. This is how prophets talk, and Jesus is one. So look at verse 3. They leave the temple complex. They walk out across a little valley and up the mountain, the, the little mountain right there across from town. they got a great view of Jerusalem. They're sitting over against it. Verse 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to, accomplished? about to be accomplished? Now, is that a good question or a bad question? 
when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When's it going to happen, and how will we know in advance that it's about to happen? Now, this time we know who's talking to him. It's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. These are the first four disciples that he called back in chapter 4. Found him, by, uh, found him in Galilee, involved in fishing in various ways. He summoned them. If anyone's going to get it, these are the guys who are going to get it. Uh, they've had the most time with Jesus. They've received the most teaching from him. Three of them were with him on the mountain of transfiguration earlier in the book of Mark. And one of them recently said to him, you are the Christ. And he said, yes, you got it. I am the Christ. Um, he is committed to teaching them. He's not going to give them weird eschatological puzzles just to mess with their heads. He's seriously trying to instruct them. But then notice the question they ask him is actually two questions. One, when will these things be? And two, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When they use the phrase, all these things, that's a clue that they have a lot of stuff bundled together in their heads, right? When are all these things going to happen? Remember, all Jesus said was that the temple would be destroyed. But then, now they're asking about it, and they say, when are all these things going to happen? Did you pick up on that? Right? He says one thing, and they say, tell us about all these things. They have a whole mental catalog of things that are going to be accomplished. They have a lot of expectations. And then they're asking sort of about the combinations of them, how it's all going to come down. The disciples probably thought, based on this exchange, that the destruction of the temple and all these end times things went together as one event. And when Jesus said the temple's coming down, it triggered in their head, yeah, everything's coming down right then. The fall of the temple was part of an end times bundle for them. And so Jesus the prophet, in order to communicate effectively with these inquiring minds, has a major task. He has to pry these two questions apart and make a distinction between the fall of the temple on the one hand and all these other things on the other hand. Because for the disciples, it's all one. When somebody asks you a complex question or a double-barreled question, you can't just answer it straightforwardly until you do the preliminary work of unbundling or distinguishing the two things going on there. You know the old question, have you quit beating your dog yet? You can't say yes because that implies that you have been beating your dog up till now, but for some reason you decided to stop. You can't say no because that makes it sound like not only have you been beating your dog, you intend to continue your program of beating your dog. And so if they say, have you quit beating your dog yet, yes or no, you have to say, I'm not going to answer yes or no. We're going to talk about this first. I'm going to distinguish some things for you. Um, another example I saw is uh, a sneakier form of a double barrel question is, would you like to go on a date with me? And what time should I pick you up? Right? So you have to stop there and say, well, let me, let me handle those one at a time. And we'll, we'll discuss the first one and then see if the second one is still relevant. Um, or, or you could add the, the, the sneakier ways like, hey, will you be a nice guy and loan me 20 bucks? Well, again, I intend to be a nice guy, but that's different from whether I will loan you 20 bucks. But let's talk about that. Um, What Jesus does in this chapter is he takes events from two different future times and shows that they are not the same thing. So Jesus the prophet is looking at one future time and a further future time, and he pries them apart to help the disciples understand what they're even asking. Bless their hearts, they don't even quite know what they're asking. They think they do, but Jesus thinks, i got to start a little further back to, to get at that. The first event that Jesus talks them through is the destruction of the temple and not just the fall of the temple. They're right to bundle something with it. The whole city comes down when the temple comes down, the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus is sitting there sometime around the year 33 AD making very specific claims about his future. And those claims come true in that generation. 
So some of the things in the speech that Jesus gives are about that. For instance, in the years immediately after this speech, there are false messiahs making all kinds of claims. And um, then there's the mysterious, uh, the uh, abomination that makes desolate. In the year 40, uh, Emperor Caligula, you know this guy Caligula, he's one of the famously awful um, Roman emperors. He, he did all sorts of nasty, lascivious things. Um, but probably the most famous thing he did was make his pet horse uh, a senator. He thought that would be cool. Like it wasn't enough to honor him. You had to call his horse senator. I don't know how the horse voted if he like stomped his foot. But anyway, that's Caligula. Um, when he was boasting about awesome, terrible stuff he was going to do, he said, I'm going to put pictures of me in your holy place. And so you can imagine being a Jew around 40 saying, Jesus warned us this was going to happen. Right? Um, and then the, the holy place actually is defiled um, a couple of times. And by the year 70 AD, it's actually all over. The city of Jerusalem falls. Um, the Roman armies of Titus march against it, and they destroy it. Josephus, that, Rome, that Jewish historian again, tells us, at the height of the siege of Jerusalem, the Romans were crucifying 500 rebels a day, uh, people who resisted the Roman uh, uh, conquest of the city. And when the city fell, having killed all those people by torture, they still had 100,000 uh, adults left to sell into slavery. It all came true. Jesus said in 33 AD, this temple is coming down, and it came down right to the foundation. Not one stone was left on another within the lifetime of those listening. So several parts of Jesus' message here made perfect sense to people alive at that time. So li listen to this part again and imagine yourself hearing it in 33. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Um, now, this stuff is, uh, that stuff about not going back into the house or when you see it, flee to the mountains, don't go back in, don't, don't go in, it makes perfect sense in a walled city. In, an ancient, in the ancient context, in a walled city, if an army's coming, you go out of the surrounding territory inside the city with walls. That's the right thing to do. Unless a prophet with inside knowledge says, do not in this case go into the walled city. That's the wrong place to be. Head for the hills. So it's very specific strategic advice for that particular thing. Um, I suppose if Jesus had maps on a battle plan, he could have also just said, it's Rome that's coming, so there's nowhere to hide from Rome. So don't bother going in there. Head for the hills. But notice the specificity. Um, those in Judea don't go into the city. Go out. That's, um, that's specific time, and it's geographically precise. It's like saying, when this happens, when you see this happen, let those in Brea not go into Brea, but head for Carbon Canyon. Right? That's, that's very specific stuff. Jesus accurately predicted a future event that then took place. He said it would happen, and it did happen. Now, that's really good news, by the way, for the fact that Jesus is a prophet, that he predicted something, and then it occurred. Then he goes on to predict further things that will happen, and we can say, even if we were just doing human reckoning, we'd say, He's got a pretty good track record. Like that one time he said that city was coming down and it did. So when he tells us about big, wild, end of the world things, odds are he's right. That's kind of an unholy way to talk about it, right? His track record and whether his odds are good. But just humanly speaking, that's pretty important. I have lots of political opinions and predictions. And if you talk to me about them, I'll tell you all about how the next presidential election is going to go down. But the thing you have to know about my opinions is I have never in my adult life been right about any presidential election, <laughs> right? And so I'm strongly opinionated and I can lay it all out for you exactly how it's gonna happen. Um, but even I should know at a higher level not to trust myself, right? At this point, if I were sort of gambling on it, I'd say, I should probably put money on the opposite of what I'm really sure is gonna happen because that's my track record. That's how good I am as a prophet. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm not gonna say that word. <laughs> uh, 
now that's one part of the message. It's all about a thing that's going to happen. And from the years 33 to the year 70, Jesus prophesies and it happens. But then other parts of this message do not fit back then. They're bigger than the fall of one city at one year in the past. They're way too big. Look at verse 19. In those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation and never will be. And then Jesus switches to past tense here, which is also a very strange thing to happen, but it's also a very, that's how prophets talk. He says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened, past tense, the days. Now, for one thing, he's speaking past tense. So he's speaking from this sort of the point of view of this prophetic future where he's looking back from the very end on what occurred. And the fall of Jerusalem was very bad. It was a major world historical event, and it was Rome itself flexing its muscles to make sure that city stayed destroyed. But it wasn't the worst thing that had ever happened, just in terms of the body count and human suffering and all of that, from the beginning of creation. And I suspect it's not the worst thing that will ever happen in human history. So we go from run to Carbon Canyon all the way to if, these, if this tribulation had not been cut short, nobody would have survived. This is the worst thing that has happened in the history of the world. Jesus has somehow widened the scope and is talking about another thing. He's moved into this all these things zone. And then look at 24. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven. Uh, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And here's, the, here's the, the crucial verse, 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect. Some of these things, Jesus, uh, so that's um, on the one hand, you've got things that happened right there in Jesus in the lifetime of those listening to Jesus. On the other hand, big ultimate final things. And Jesus kind of takes those apart. And then having distinguished them, he starts talking about both of them. It's like he's, he's shown, well, no, these are two different decks of cards. But then he shuffles them and begins dealing out of both of them. So some of the things Jesus describes apply to both their future and to our future. Look at verse 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. These are precious words about people who testify about Jesus Christ under pressure at any time and in any place. The Holy Spirit will speak through them. That they, they don't have to plan ahead, oh, how would I bear witness? Um, they will be given words of power to speak that are the very testimony of God through the Holy Spirit speaking through them. This was true for Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. They all needed that because they all suffered persecution for the name of Jesus. But it's true of us. It's true of anyone anywhere in the world in any time period as a follower of Jesus. Now, uh, Jesus uses these two events like lenses on a telescope. You know, a telescope has to have two lenses, the big, really impressive objective lens that really does all the work, and then the little eyepiece lens that gets it to you. Um, those wouldn't work if they didn't have any distance between them. And when the disciples start, they've got it all together, right? When will all these things be? And Jesus says, well, there, there's the thing that I just talked about, the little thing nearby that's a big world event, but it's not the final thing. And then he brings in this gigantic, monstrous uh, objective lens, which sees the very end of all things. And when he's got them the right focal distance apart, you can see what's going to happen. Because prophecy works that way. That's how prophecy functions. Look at any prophet you want in the Old Testament, um, or as my friend Joe Henderson calls it, most of the Bible. Right? You look at that, and this is how they talk. They all look to the future, and they describe something that's coming up soon, 
that's going to be relevant for those hearing their words immediately. And the reason we wrote it down and kept it and still continue reading it years later is not just as documents of successful, fulfilled prophecies, but because they also always look to a final conclusion. They always see the near thing and the far thing. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit speaks through a prophet to teach us about the end times, the prophet is giving a strange and special kind of knowledge. Prophecy is never just a trick for foretelling something that's about to happen in the near future. It's, it's always a spiritual insight that seems to, the knowledge of the thing coming up soon seems to be pushed out by the ultimate end times knowledge. It's as if you open the tap and all the pressure that brings that information to you is sort of pressure from a big reservoir of the end times. And it does push out some local um, uh, upcoming events, and you then know things about that. You know, to us, a child will be born, um, and we'll know about that. Isaiah talks about, but then he sees that against the context of, no, 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 I'm talking about this other child that's going to be born. Um, this always happens. Amos, Joel, uh, you name it, any of those prophetic books. Well, I can't vouch for Obadiah because I haven't read it recently, but probably. Um, Jesus the prophet speaks like all the true prophets, and prophetic knowledge has this odd character. It's always going to have these two focal points, the near one and the ultimate one. Far away things, when you're looking at something from a great distance, um, they flatten out. You know what I mean? Um, they might have a lot of distance in between them when you're, if you're actually there, but from a distance, they flatten out. And then when you get close to them, they sort of open up because you're inside of them. So when I was a kid, uh, in Southern California, I'd look off into the distance and see mountains, and I would, I would say, I want to go to those mountains. And what I meant by I want to go to those mountains is I saw this blue flat thing. It looked like a blue piece of felt on a felt board, you know, and it, it went like this. And I would think, I want to go there. Like, how long would it take us to go there? Because I want to stand on that mountain peak right there in the middle and turn to my left and see that peak over there, turn to my right and see that peak over there. That would be fun. Let's go there. So. We would get in the car and we would go to the mountains on some of these weekends, and um, and it wasn't what I had expected. You know, um, we would drive for a long, long time through foothills, which didn't seem at all like what I was expecting to get. It just feels very unmountainy, right? It seems kind of flat, just a gradual uphill. And then when you finally get there, you actually stand on top of the mountain peak you saw from the valley, and and your dad says to you, "You're here," and you look to your left, and there's there's, there's not the mountain peak there. In fact, you already drove past that other peak on the way there. It, it was like an hour back. Um, and then you look to your right, and that mountain peak's not there. In fact, it's way, way further into the mountain range, and it's far bigger than you thought. And so in one sense, you did go to the mountain range, right? You, you saw it from the valley, and then you went there. But once you're there, once you're inside the mountain range, um, it's all related differently. And in one sense, you can never go to the flat object you thought about. I have no idea what I thought I would go to. Like we would drive to the very edge of the valley and bump into a big flat blue mountain or something. Um, and then we could climb it and we'd be on top and we'd have mountain peaks to our left and right. That's not how it is. Once you're inside of it, it opens up and the relationships are a little bit different. This, it was disappointing to me as a kid, but I got over it. Um, this is how God teaches about the future. He gives the explanation that is going to make some kind of teaching sense from where you are. Think about the very first prophecy in Scripture. This is how God delivers. This one's not spoken through a prophet, but God himself, the Lord God in the Garden of Eden, speaks and says, um, the fall has happened, the serpent has tempted, uh, Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, and here's what's going to happen now. The seed of the, the, seed of the serpent uh, is going to wound the seed of the woman, 
but the seed of the woman is going to destroy the serpent eventually. That's how this is going to happen. The snake's going to have a baby. The woman's going to have a baby. Later on, they're going to fight, and the woman's baby's going to win. And Adam and Eve are looking around for paper. There's no paper yet. But they're trying like, try to take notes on this, going, that sounds important about the future. Could you give us a little more detail about how that's going to happen? And God says, yeah, um, the, the, the snake's baby is going to bite the woman's baby on the heel, and then the woman's baby is going to crush the snake's baby. That's how that's going to work. And Adam and Eve are thinking, that's okay, that kind of makes sense. I know what snakes are, and I know what humans are, and I, I know what heels are. I know where babies come from. So that's how that all is going to go down. And that is, in fact, how it all goes down. But once you actually get there, it looks very different. You get a lot more accumulated detail as you approach how that works. And it looks like what we're going to read at the end of Mark, right? That is, in fact, um, the, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. But there's no snake to be seen in the story. But that was a good representation of what was going to happen. As it opened up, the people who get to it and see it happen say, oh, that's what was going on. Turns out every word is true. It all comes to pass. But when it happens, it looks different from the way you were expecting it. This is also how the first coming of Christ looked, right? Um, we had certain things which were good predictive prophecy. You could find out which city Jesus was going to be born in. Um, and yet, all the other stuff sort of started making sense when Jesus started doing it. The generation alive at the time of the fulfillment saw it was all coming true and thought, I need to run home and read the book of Psalms again because there's stuff there that I just thought was mysterious and interesting, which now makes perfect sense now that I'm seeing what's going down. Now, Jesus the prophet has a message to give his disciples, and what he has to do is explain to them in one lesson a set of things that are going to roll out step by step. Looking back on it, it's really easy for us to see, but imagine how hard it was for the disciples to grasp the fact that this man is the Messiah. Yay, this man's the Messiah. Peter just said that. Uh, but then he's going to be killed, because Jesus points that out in the next verse. So they go straight from, yay, he's the Messiah, to, oh, boo, he's going to be killed. But then they find out... Um, that's okay, he's gonna rise up again, right? He's gonna come back to life. Okay, I didn't see that one coming, but that's cool. Um, but then he's going to fly away into the clouds and be gone. That's also very strange, and that's bad, right? But um, then uh, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, that's good again, right? Yeah, but then Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Oh, that's the holy city. That's no good. Okay. Yeah, but then Jesus is going to return, and we're going to see his glory. Oh, well, that's good. Well, that was a lot of steps, and it's very easy for us. It's very, uh, we can look back on that accomplished thing and see it all makes sense. It's all what Jesus was doing. But at the time, to keep all those ups and downs straight, you would have had to make some kind of a chart, right? I'm not talking about a big chart that folds out of your study Bible, but some kind of chart. And if you had made that chart, it would have looked a little bit like a mountain range, and it would have kind of gone like that, right? And then when you get into the events happening, it would have kind of unfolded, and you would have noticed, oh, I'm at a certain place within this mountain range. Here's one other thing about eschatological knowledge, end times knowledge. As you approach the prophesied events, certain things happen that make the words of the prophecy make sense. So in one sense, some of these words are time capsules. They're all true. They're all true for all time, but there are, some of them are focused on a particular time where generations of Christians will read Mark 13 and say, I think I get partly what this is. I think I understand enough of this to know what's being communicated here. But the generation alive at the time that these things go down will say, that verse just broke wide open and is crystal clear now. This is like a, this is like a time release capsule that Jesus dropped back then, which really opens up right now. One example would be verse 14, that very hard passage about the abomination of desolation, standing where it or maybe where he ought not to be. Um, actually, at the time of Jesus, all the Jews interested in prophecy thought that this had already happened. 
they, they were pretty sure that Antiochus Epiphanes in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament had desecrated the Holy of Holies in such a way that the abomination of desolation had already stood in the place where it ought not to be. But then Jesus comes along and says, no, no, that, that, and that's a prophecy from Daniel, by the way. They thought, oh my gosh, that just happened. Daniel just came true. But Jesus comes along and says, no, no, it's still going to happen. And there were certainly desolating abominations in the year 70. Um, but this is in the part of the passage where you think, oh, this is still going to happen somehow. There's going to be a generation that sees an abomination that they recognize as a clue that the end is near. So here's the thing. That's kind of an explanation of why, if I can't explain all prophecy to you, I can at least explain why I can't explain it, right? Like some of this information will uh, come open and make more sense, makes some sense now, but it's going to make a lot more sense uh, to that generation that's right there. And you can't say in advance if you are that generation. You just have to pay attention, which is the recurring theme of this. Don't be deceived and pay attention. So Jesus is a prophet. Did you notice that in this message, um, with all that Jesus did accomplish, he never quite answered their question? Their question was, when will these things be? And his answer, um, right, right down towards the end of the passage, we're in, he says, oh yeah, of that day and time, no man knows. You know, nobody knows the hour. Oh, okay, well, thank you. That, that is an answer. That is, that is an answer to the question, when will these things be? And then he says, what will be the sign? And he doesn't really talk about signs for the whole rest of the discourse. He says, um, in verse 22, he says, oh, false Christs are going to give false signs to deceive you. That's all he has to say about signs, right? He names a lot of things that aren't signs. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. Those are bad, but those aren't signs. That's just, that's the beginning. You can't tell the baby's about to come. That just means you're beginning to go into labor. It's, it's, that is not a sign. Um, and then he says, you will see this, they will see, he says, the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with glory is not exactly a sign. That's the thing itself. So if you were asking, how are we going to know? What's the sign by which we'll know this is about to happen? So like, well, then I'm going to show up and the Son of Man will be in the clouds. You go, well, that's, that's the alarm clock already going off. That's not a warning before the alarm clock. The key idea of the whole discourse is in that first word uh, that Jesus says, see to it, uh, watch out, take heed, be careful. Take care. Jesus is the great prophet, and he does what prophets do. They tell the truth. They don't give you false encouragement. Notice this is not, in general, a happy passage. People in the Old Testament people would always go to prophets and say, give us a cheerful thought for the day that will really encourage us to get through the day. And prophets would say, lots of bad news, and end at the very end after totally beating you into the dirt with, so take courage, because ultimately there will be victory. You go, wow, that was not an inspirational, motivational thought for the day. They, they tell the truth, even when it is the hard truth of stuff you would rather avert your eyes from. They tell the future. And we saw Jesus accurately predict an event that then did take place, and he is accurately predicting events that have not yet taken place for us. And then the third thing is um, prophets always tell the Bible. And, and this whole passage, Mark 13, is just, it's a tapestry of sections uh, from the prophetic parts of Scripture. And by the way, if we're talking about getting to know the whole Bible and listening to the whole message. Um, at the last part of the Old Testament, there's a whole cluster of books which are all about prophetic stuff. So it's odd how we want to uh, cluster those at the end of both Testaments so that we don't necessarily have to go there. But Jesus is doing Joel 2, Isaiah 34, Daniel 7. This whole thing is just woven together with previous scripture. And Jesus is explaining the meaning of it and applying it prophetically. As the prophet, the Son of God was anointed by the Spirit of God to speak the words of the Father to us perfectly. Now, we spent the most time on Jesus being prophet because that is what this chapter is. But here's the, 
thing that is different between Jesus and every other prophet. And you might have already noticed, to praise Jesus as a prophet um, might be sort of faint praise, right? Of all the things you could say about him, you could say, well, I mean, Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, but we believe something much more, don't we? Yes, we do. And that's because the nature of Jesus' prophecy is not about somebody else or something else. Ultimately, what Jesus is prophesying is his own work and his own glory. And we see it first in what he says, uh, in how he's acting out the priesthood that he brings. Now, this is what they say the least about in this passage, but you have to notice that Jesus goes across from the temple and he's looking at the city and he's talking about the fall of the temple. The disciples are still sort of hung up on, that is a perfectly good, excellent building. Why would anybody knock that down? And Jesus is seeing the big picture saying, I mean, it is a good building, but it's not a perfectly good building. It's actually a rough draft. It's actually a sketch. The whole divinely instituted priestly ordinance, all that stuff that happens with all the sacrifices and all the uh, observances that God put in place that are holy and good things that God put there for us, those were the first draft. Those were the thing that was supposed to get you to understand what's going to happen in the full, true, final priestly ministry that I, Jesus, am carrying out. And so when he sees the temple and says, it's got to come down, it's because he understands the whole context and knows, I am about to do the priestly thing after which no other priestly sacrifice needs to be offered. And so the temple is good for what it's for, but what it's for is about to be over with because the, the final sacrifice is about to be offered. And then finally, and so just as you can trust Jesus as your prophet, you can trust him as your priest, that he actually is the one who carries out God's priestly intentions so fully and so finally and so completely that they're actually carried out, that he brings about the reconciliation of God and man in a way that the priestly sacrifices under the Levitical covenant only pointed to. And then finally, Jesus is the king. And the high point of this message, of this Olivet Discourse we're looking at, is what Jesus says in verse 24, the word he speaks there about the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Once again, he speaks as a prophet. But what this prophet prophesies is his own work as priest and his own glory as king. In those days, after that tribulation, he says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man, coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, now what, what is this? They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with glory. This is all from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, uh, 7.13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and tongues and should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now, we don't have time to look into Daniel. Um, Jesus obviously was a big fan of the prophecy of Daniel and knew it well. And, and he's giving here sort of the punchline to it. He's expanding on the meaning. This is right after Daniel has that wild vision where the sea is surging and all kinds of bizarro monsters come out of it. Um, there's a bear with ribs sticking out of his mouth. And there's a, there's a lion with wings. And the wings fall off. And the lion stands up and acts like a man and rules things for a while. And then there's this really big, strange monster with metal teeth. Um, just one, just a, one horror show after another, you know, these... Um, non-human monstrous things ruling. They've, they're all kings. They've all got kingdoms. They're all bossing everybody around on the earth. And then he says, 
I kept looking, and one like a son of man came. Like one like a son of man. At least that means something human shaped, right? After all the bears with ribs and the lions with wings and the, the toothy monster things, finally something human shaped came to the Ancient of Days, and he got a kingdom, and that kingdom was not gonna just pass away to the next monster that comes out of the ocean. That human one ruled forever. And Jesus is saying, that's what they're gonna see. They're gonna see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, just like Daniel said, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. Everybody's sick. This big picture sketch of world history is everybody's sick of subhuman forces bossing everybody around and ruling the world. And finally, our brother Jesus, you know, the Son of God who became one of us, who's really human, a Son of Man, he has conquered and he is going to rule the world finally. This is the human one. He's coming in the clouds. This is the seed of the woman who crushes the snake's head. This is where it's all coming true. This is where Psalm 110, uh, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool your feet. This is all happening. What Stephen, the first martyr, looked up into the open heavens and saw in a spiritual vision, Jesus at the right hand of God up there in the heavens. It's all coming true right here. And Jesus says, this is what they're going to see. As the king, the son of God is empowered by the spirit of God to rule over all the humans, all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in the name of God. And this is what is in our future. In our future, we will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. If not in this generation, in some coming generation, Jesus the prophet has said it will happen. We will look up and see him coming in the clouds. Early Christians expected the return of Jesus. They turned from idols, Paul tells us in Thessalonians. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. R.A. Torrey, the first academic dean at Biola, believed in the return of Jesus. He waited for it. He actually... He said it gave his ministry urgency. It gave his time on earth. It gave his every sense of every day a kind of focus. It kept him undistracted. It kept him pure. He actually wouldn't go see movies that he was afraid Jesus would come back while he was watching, right? Like, oh, what am I going to say to Jesus if I'm watching this movie and the Lord returns? Um, the church I grew up in, though they were a little bit odd at times, they expected the return of Jesus. They were a little odd, but they were weird like the first Christians. Um, one commentary that I read about this passage said, about expecting the return of Jesus in the clouds. It said, this type of thinking is difficult for modern Western people, but it seems consistent with the biblical material. I like that understated scholarly way of putting it. Mm, it seems difficult for modern Western people to think this way, but uh, basically it's what the Bible says. The Son of Man coming in the clouds. He is coming in the clouds. When you believe this, you walk on the earth under a different kind of heaven. When I was a kid, I didn't just think incoherently about mountains. I also thought about clouds in a particular way because of the preaching of passages like this. I looked at the clouds, and I could do okay with a cloudless sky, which we get lots of around here, and I could do okay with a complete cloud cover, but if any clouds were a little bit too sharp looking or a little too low or moving a little too fast or doing anything weird, I was spooked because I thought, one of these days, one of those clouds is going to have Jesus in it. And the sky is going to open up, and the Son of Man is going to come back. It could be any one of these clouds. We don't know. There are clouds everywhere. And uh, it's like the sky is haunted, you know? Like, it's like, I'm going to go to those mountains because one of those clouds could have Jesus in it. Um, it's not just that Jesus is coming. It's that Jesus, our priest, our prophet, our king, is fully divine. And, and clouds, I don't know if you've noticed this in the Old Testament, clouds are God's transportation. You shouldn't picture him sitting on the clouds, but over and over. Psalm 104, he makes the clouds his chariot. 
Um, he rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Uh, one of these days, we will see the fulfillment of all that biblical language about God being in the clouds and traveling through the clouds because the Son of Man, the crucified and risen one who ascended to sit at the right hand of God, will come with the clouds. I know school's starting up for a lot of us, and if I were to give you homework based on this message, uh, the homework would be a nice, fluffy, easy assignment for this first week. It would be look at the clouds, but it would be to look at them uh, with the full understanding of what Jesus, the prophet, explained about their meaning. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your instruction to us. Thank you that we can trust your son, Jesus Christ, as our prophet, priest, and king. Lord, will you give us insight into the time we live in and the times that are coming? Lord, will you comfort us by showing us a deeper revelation of who you are? Will you undertake to be our instructor in this way, Lord, and teach us these lessons so that they apply to our hearts in a profound way that changes how we live, how we love each other, and what we expect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.